I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. And I am here with Chris Dancy, who is the mindful cyborg, aka the world's most connected human being or, or something similar to that. Um, he is an IT guy, and I am slightly nervous about being able to like understand the words that he's going to say over the, next, over the next little while. But what he's already said in our like pre-recording talk has blown my mind. So I'm super excited. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining Hi, I'm super excited and big shout out to Jessica Brooks who introduced us. Yes, yes. Um, so at first, I think it's, it's interesting because I was Googling you and doing my research and I, I don't see a ton about anti-racism there. And so one wouldn't think looking at your stuff that what you do is in the anti-racist sphere. Um, but we were connected for that reason. And so um, you started to explain a little bit before we, before we started recording and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, um, the performative nature of our values that you said, and 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 what what you're pulling out all the the sound bites I gave you. I've got those are his. That was his sound bite. That was his quote. <laughs> I'm like, I just want to hear more about that. And how? Yeah. What? It, first, I want actually, I would love for you to say what anti-racism means to you, and then start talking more about how it plays out in your world. Sure. Uh, so first, thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, I didn't cyber, uh, cyber stalk you. And by the way, just the concept of cyber stalking makes me uncomfortable. So I'm just going <laughs> to keep it real the whole conversation. Not that I don't like it. It's just the fact that we, we refer to it as cyber stalking instead of just referring to it as I looked you up. Research, uh, it's yeah. like we have so many ways of like really demoralizing each other in a culture that requires technological connections. We don't make it, uh, you know, we don't make it friendly. Um, so gosh, I'll just start with the first thing. Uh, how do I define anti-racism? So there's a lot of words or a lot of uh, feelings, I'll, I'll say before I even give you words that come up to me when I hear the term anti-racism. Mm -hmm. um, I fear anti-anything. And I believe everyone is morally a racist at some level because it's inherently human nature to look for differences. It's like literally a genetic thing. But when I think about anti-racism together, to me, I would define it as the uh, moment by moment uh, observation of behavior uh, to remediate suffering within cultures of disparate people. That was good. That was awesome. I literally was doing it as fast as I could in my head. Sorry. I was like, <laughs> sitting there. People, it's, I love asking this question. I didn't use, I just started doing it in my last several interviews and it's, it, it, it is very um, informative and it always teaches me. Um, so, okay, so yeah, so you are not like an obvious like hashtag anti-racist activist on the, on the surface. No, no, because I wrote a book in 2018 called Don't Unplug, How Technology Saved My Life and Can Save Yours Too. And I'm writing a new book, The Art of Appiness. See what I did there? Ooh. So um, basically living your values through your technological use. Um, no, I mean, I, partly because of my age, Jill, and partly because of what I would call cringe factor, um, we've become kind of reflective 
and our behaviors with each other. You know, selfies through TikToks, through a lot of the things we do. It's just, it's very normal. We do it when we don't have technology. We just mimic what, what, what we see each other do. Part of my belief system is if you want to, back in the day, we would call it witness, right? If you wanted to witness Christianity, it's back, going back to when I was in my, in my 50s, now my 20s, when my mom wanted to get me saved, right? Um, was you just witnessed without going door to door. I mean, you could go to door to door. There was a way you could show the power of Christ without ever compelling it. And I've always truly believed that some of the most powerful things you could do is just show the, your values without making them visible for the world to see mm -hmm. that whole thing. Like if you pay for the person behind you in line, you don't mention it to anyone, right? right? You know, there's all sorts of things, little things you can just do that make the world a little bit better. That being said, I do understand and I do emphasize with a lot of young people today and a lot of older people today feel the need because culturally it's appropriate to put on the clothing of digital righteousness. It's just what you would do. It looks very performative, but I have to be careful. For many people, it's how they exercise their voice, how they exercise their values. And this really is what I try to get to in the heart of the new stuff that I'm writing. So to your point, do I look like someone who has put on the, 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 the cyborg armor of anti-racism? Mm -hmm. No, but I'm programming the suits you guys are wearing. Can you take that a little further? Sure. So. A lot of times in a society where we look to each other or figureheads or influence or whatever, we take our cues from the things that really provoke us, even if they're uncomfortable. And that's where you get the polarization. And then we back away. So what was kind of, you know, the culture du jour yesterday is cringy today. Like, oh, I would never say that, you know. Like everyone gets kind of cringy with selfies now. Whereas like five years ago, 10 years ago, selfies were all in vogue. So when I say I'm programming the suit of armor, what I really mean is I always try to stay just a little bit right in front of where I think the conversation's going, mm -hmm. only because I feel to be effective, you can't be so much of a influential voice that you're locked into an opinion, right? Never become a Kardashian because you will never not be a Kardashian. Yeah. Uh, but also never become so irrelevant that when you speak, you're part of the herd. Right? It's better to be heard than be part of the herd, right? So kind of there's an old commercial in the 80s guy, you know, uh, with this, this, this brokerage firm called E.F. Hutton. And it was like when E.F. Hutton people, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. And I, I've always really tried to take my cues from that. Now, that being said, if I'm asked to be on a panel or to talk directly about racism, my experience with racism, uh, the things I do to practice anti-racism, as, as you might describe it, absolutely, I will 100% do it. But do I have to elevate something that is apparent and force it down people's throats who literally want to hate me because I believe in it? I don't think that's effective. Hmm. I don't think it that's is, effective. It is interesting because it's like, if they don't hear it, they're not going to hear it. But if they hear it and they're not open to hearing it, then it pushes them further away. So it's, it's always a fine, I've, I have found it's a, a fine balance. Yeah, and that, and you know, as a practicing Buddhist, I think I also have to lean into what I would call inevitability. Mm -hmm. <laughs> These people will die. <laughs> These ideas will morph and change. And, you know, this idea of more, a more equal uh, world will, will become more prevalent. It's just a matter of time. 
So a lot of times I have to really weigh when I'm thinking very, and I'm going to use the word I normally use, violently, thinking violently about how I want something to change. I have to temper that with this idea of, well, that's your time scale. <laughs> Was it Obama who said something about the moral arc of the universe uh, or John um, I don't Ben's Towards Justice? Sorry. I should never quote people because I never do a good job. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm curious about this, the, like it's eventually going to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, I mean, one of two things happens. The, happen, right? Like we have to, it, we can't just wait for it to happen. I feel like there has to be action. Well, we've been taking action and we've been waiting for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, are we going to fix this anytime soon? No. So what can we do, right? There are things we can do individually about changing a very corrupt system, right? Because there's a difference between systematic racism and algorithmic racism, right? Systematic racism is when all systems, digital, analog, other systems, human systems, basically all conspire to have an outcome that perpetuates itself. A system will always want to protect its system self or its system's purpose. But algorithmic racism is differently because that those are systems that learn, right? So, other, you know, algorithmically, if you start looking at the racism of how it's practiced through our tools and things, you can start to say, oh, then I could use my tool differently because I now have a system that is actually programmable through my behavior. I can't act good enough to change my mom's mind and make her not a racism. I, I'm a racist. I can't. I can't date a, a black girl named Andrea Mack, which I did when I was a teenager to change my mom's mind, didn't work. I can't join the church, that didn't change my mom's mind. She was still a racist, right? I, there's nothing I can do. But with technology, big mother, not big brother, I can. I can change how I use my tech. I can choose how I communicate with it. And that informs many more people and myself because it perpetuates itself. So you literally become you know, as you as you're describing this movement, this anti-racism movement, the books and everything else that are about it, it's it's fulfilling itself. Well, that's not because we're becoming better people. What you're witnessing literally is a feedback loop into algorithmic anti-racism, mm -hmm. and that's provocative yeah. because I, you know, to put it really simply, you have to give up on people. Right? You have to just give up that somehow, especially if you want to like unpack this in any time frame. that's going to make you not want to just end it, right? Like I can't move. I can't, like some days I can't go out. I was speaking to my spouse the other day. I said, you know, I'd gone from someone in the 80s who was learning to drive and I was taught about defensive driving to now when I walk my dogs, I have to defensively live, right? It's the truck slowing down next to me, throwing me gang symbols and white power symbols, trying to say to me, are you one of us? Or are they trying to say, we know you're queer and we're going to kill you and your dogs, right? Does the car not using their blinker with a bunch of people and the windows rolled up with just enough smoke coming out? Are those gang bangers that are going to hurt me? Because, you know, I don't have a low rider car. So like everything I do is defensive. And when I'm alone or I'm using my technology or I'm with my family and we're expressing ourselves through our technology, I'm not talking about hashtags and all that kind of stuff, but I mean deliberate use of our technology, we can be pretty provocative, right? We can, you know, simple things like leaving a message at the restaurant you order your food at saying Black Lives Matter is much more provocative than putting it on Twitter, right? Because the special food instruction, right, instead of saying extra ketchup says Black Lives Matter, right? Well, that's going to the people who, who know it and, and want, should be talking about it, right? 
you know, putting on Twitter is not going to get as much feedback. So I think I'm excited because I think we're living in a time where some very uncomfortable truths are becoming super, super relevant and visible, which is making everybody even more awkward and teenagerly like, and I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the where the work I do in the spaces is like helping people using the mind body tools to help people deal with that teenage awkwardness <laughs> so that they don't just like run away and cry in the corner, but actually like move forward into it. So that's funny that you brought that up. I haven't used those terms, but I like that. Um, yeah. So that's, you, how, that's how it feels. Sorry, I didn't mean to use the term. But that's how it uh, feels no, to no, me. it's <laughs> great. It's like perfect. It's just, My hands get cold. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So can you give some examples of how one can, because you said we have to give up on the people, but you also said that people using their technology are going to do that feedback and, and make the change. So can you give some, for people like me who are like not as technologically minded, give some examples of what like people on a regular basis do maybe that are potentially either perpetuating racism or perpetuating anti-racism. Right. So I think it really starts when we talk about you know, technolo technology and racism. There's, there's the kind of common day tropes that we've been conditioned to read, like only people in Silicon Valley program, program computers. So that means these tools are inherently racist. You can see this all over academia. You can see this, you know, every lecture has some keynote speaker talking about this. And again, that's true, but it was also true 10 years ago. It was also true 20 years ago. So if it was actually a real problem, we wouldn't be talking about it now, right? So we have to like really get underneath the covers of like the really what I call second order technological racism. And that really starts by looking at racism and technology through three levels of um, three lenses, right? The first one would be like classical, ugly, evil, biblical slavery. Right. Right. That's like, let's just go there and call it what it is. Like if we could outright taking a life, like the next worst thing you could do. And I would, you know, I'd go so far as to say, you know, people who kill people, slavery is just so much worse in my own personal opinion than, than taking a life. But that's a whole other conversation to unpack. Um, that still happens. And, and it still happens in a lot of countries. And, and strangely enough, it still happens in places where we mine the precious metals that make our devices, right? So while Tim Cook likes to stole, you know, the virtues of having a, a gay man run Apple and their carbon neutral footprint, they still buy precious, uh, precious uh, metals and, and, and gems are still mined in countries that literally practice slavery, right? So, but no talk, let's not talk about that. So I think we have to first like come to the terms and grips with our very devices, the ones we held in our hands were literally put together by people who were enslaved. All right. The second thing is once we dig up these precious metals and these gems and things, like, so now how do we get to this like next level? So some, okay, that's horrible. Like, okay, well it gets better from there. Right. But not much. Right. Well then they're, they're assembled in countries where oppression not slavery, oppression is the racism de jure, right? And whether it's a group of people or a, group, a minority group of people within a country or an ethnic group within a country, you know, it doesn't really matter in these countries. Uh, and again, I'm not going to go through name countries. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Um, there are places where people literally kill themselves because it's such an oppressive climate to, to put, the, put these devices together. Again, that has gotten some you know, Blood Diamonds has gotten some press, right? Uh, people jumping from factory windows when putting together iPhones, that has gotten some press, but not enough, right? Let's just be honest, it's still not enough, right? We can't pretend like racism is some unique thing that happens just in America with African-Americans. Like it's just, it's, it's everywhere. But then we get to the stuff like you and I can control, right? Okay, so I literally need a phone to work and live and love my family. 
Like, okay, so I don't know how I'm gonna deal with the first two unless I can learn to build my own phones and my own gems. But the last one's the one the important one you can do. And that's the segregation. So if you've got slavery, oppression, and segregation, segregation at the lowest levels, well, how are you just using your phone fostering segregation, right? And I think there's a lot to unpack there. Everything from, and I'll stop here and we can unpack it more, but I just wanna make sure I get through all three first. Everything from, you know, ordering online and the types of people who do the delivery jobs to bring it to you, to the restaurants or grocery stores you order from locally, to when you're using your GPS and your GPS routes you the fastest way, which 99% of the time is not through the neighborhoods that you would consider to be safe, uh, to how your preferences and likes and something like Facebook drive ads and sets of faces that look very familiar uh, to you. Uh, because they're trying to sell you something. You know, there's so much racism embedded in capitalism that we really have yet to realize that shopping is the most horrific thing we can do if we actually cared about each other because you have to kind of get through this value chain of hate between what you bought and what you wanted and when it showed up. So I can unpack a lot of those more, but I just want to stop because I, I realize I talk a lot sometimes, <laughs> especially about this topic. It's, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. Can you talk more about the GPS? Because I'm not quite sure... So you're saying GPS takes you through yeah. so G neighborhoods or yeah, yeah. Neighborhoods? So GPS is a really interesting, uh, interesting piece of technology. One, because you know, it's using satellites and a bunch of other stuff. But GPS also uses something besides satellites, right? It uses knowledge of the roads, right? So you've got satellites, knowledge of the roads. Satellites were put up by you know, someone. Knowledge of the roads, roads are, that's public knowledge. But it uses this really important thing, which is population, right? So your phone will show you like what roads are super busy. But literally, it'll show you like red lines on it. So by their very nature, people as a herd, right, will move in groups to avoid congestion, right? Now, if you, if you come up to congestion, it's too late. But oftentimes when you use a GPS, it'll say, do you want the, the shortest way? Do you want the fastest way? And then if there's a toll involved, they'll offer you a third one, the cheapest way, right? You can see this all the time in GPS. And nine times out of 10, all three of those options are going to take you the whitest way, right? It's just, that's literally what they do, right? You know, they, don't, they don't offer you any other way. And the people traveling with you in those, on those routes are often very much like you. So what I've always argued for is GPS needs to kind of incorporate a fourth element, which is the most learned way, which would be a way that kind of combined all three of those things and moved you with people historically you might not run into when you pull over for gas, right? But everyone looks like you when you get gas and the places you stop for gas are like the places that are people who look, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a, cut, a cookie cutter situation we've got coming down here with technology. So when I say GPS, I say, you know, systems like Waze are probably the most insidious because they have everything from cop flag, cop police flagging, where you can like flag police, that's all police, uh, to like if you see someone broken down, then you have to play a game while you're driving. Like, yeah, I saw them broken down too. So it's kind of this crowdsourced way of like everyone following the same belief system. Is this making sense to you? Yes. Okay. So again, <laughs> if, if I would ask you and I would ask if you have a friend who's a black or brown American to stand at the same spot and both put into GPS where you want to go and see if it offers you two different routes. It will. Yeah, it, it just will. Because this is, that's just the nature of what technology does. Technology to be convenient has to be invisible. To be invisible, it has to just act like you. 
That's so interesting. That's so insidious. It's like you can't escape from your own. You, well, yeah, well, you can't, but you can be aware of it. Yeah. And you can, you know, I always say anti-racism or, or, or kind of value-based behavior is not like good eating. You have to know about the food label first mm -hmm. and then you have to make just better choices. Like there's no way to, to fix this. I can't, you know, yeah, there's just no more Martin Luther Kings, right? There's no more big voices. There's no more Malcolm X's. There's no, there's no more, you know, Mother Teresa's for that matter, right? This is, we have to, as a group of people, as a mass, as a single unit, start making decisions differently. And that's the only way to, you know, uh, I, I tell Jessica when we, were, when we were getting ready to launch our app, I said, you know, it was right in the middle of one of the last unrest we had in the last six months. And there was a news reports that people were stacking bricks, that white activists were stacking bricks on the sides of these cities so that they could film uh, the protesters picking them up and throwing them through windows. And it made me so angry, uh, you know, because I thought, well, I could totally see that happening, right? Because they know now the weapon is the media, not the message, right? So I thought to myself, Jessica, I want to I build piles of bricks, right? And I think it's important that we start looking at that as a metaphor or the tools we're putting out there in the community, whether you're a software developer or you're a media creator or a doctor or, you know, what are all the things you and I are? Are we creating piles of bricks? Because, you know, the other thing you can do with a pile of bricks is brick up a window that's broken, broken, right? Yeah. So very exciting time to like flip the flip. Tell me about, I'd love to know more about the app that you're, that you're creating. And, and Jessica, for, for people, I have interviewed her on this and several of her colleagues, but she's the, one of the co-founders of EARN is the Executive Action and Response Network um, that is helping bring uh, I guess, elevate uh, black professionals in Pittsburgh and beyond um, and try to increase the quality of life. Um, her and her colleagues are all uh, business executives in, in Pittsburgh. So can you talk a little bit about the app? It sounds amazing. I've heard them talk about it from their end, but I'd love to hear from you. Uh, it's, my, it's, it's, my, it's my baby, so I'll talk about it. Um, I came up with this idea three years ago and it, it really was, you know, when I looked at the world and I looked at technology, like everyone kind of goes through the same cycles you know, they go through this cycle where you kind of get productive. Then you go, once you got your stuff together, you kind of go through a cycle where you kind of get healthy. And then once you got your health together, you go through the cycle where you kind of become very spiritual. And once you got your spirituality together, then you be kind of become kind of this, this person who's very active in, in social causes. And then after you got together, you usually become a monk richer, you just leave. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I thought to myself, what's the opposite of the quantified self, right? Because the quantified self is what so much of these metrics on social media do. Like, oh, this got this many posts and this got this many likes and this got this many shares or I did this and this many happens. Like, what is the opposite of my metrics? Well, the opposite of my metrics are our metrics, right? So if I involve someone else in the number, then it's not a number that can be weaponized as easily. So then I had to ask myself, okay, so if I have to redefine numbers, I now I have to redefine define, right? So I started thinking to myself, well, why is it that I've never been comfortable with this concept of equality? Like, okay, we want equal access in the boardroom or some women, uh, we want equal pay. That's always made me uncomfortable. And, 
And it took me a while to kind of get my head around why I didn't like that either. Because as a gay guy, like I had to pretend to be straight for a long time. Uh, growing up, you know, every single one of my partners has always not been white, right? So I've always had to deal with the mixed thing. Uh, in the last 10 years, I've had to come out, I've had to deal with this concept of what, you know, what is non-gendered, you know, what is gender and, and had it myself like come to terms with that. And I've realized that the reason a lot of these equality agendas and pushes, whether it be equal pay or, or equal representation, really bothered me because we're still trying to get to the same starting point that most white people in a certain income class enjoy anyway, which is freedom to do what we want with our time. So why don't we cut out the middle point and just have freedom to do what we want with our time. Why do we make representation and pay some type of middle stepping stone to get what they, they, that the others have that we want, which is freedom to do with what I want? And that really got me thinking, well, what is that? If I had to develop a way to measure people and put them all equally on the same plane, how would that look? Mm. So, because again, I, Let's just pretend like, and I always ask people, especially young people, I mentor a lot of people. I say, you know, if, if I told you tomorrow, you never have to pay rent or worry about feeding yourself again, what would you do with your time? Well, suddenly every single question that come with me goes out the window because they haven't figured that out. I'm like, well, that's where we need to start because that's where you want to be. You don't want the next step. You want the last step. All right. So when I started working with Earn and we were, I was, because Earn was one of our first groups using our application. They were, you know, we were having these discussions. I've volunteered, I can't tell you how many hours to earn building things for them. And, you know, they were, they were, pre they were pretty blunt, you know, you know, the, you know, we're doing this because, you know, we have, you know, representation, you know, at, at executive jobs in and about Pittsburgh uh, for black executives. And I said, it's important and, and making this stuff visible, but unless you measure people and give them tools to remediate, you're nothing more than a media arm, right? You just of a media arm of a problem we already know exists, right? You know, there needs to be a there needs to be a stock market for suffering, right? The stock market's never been higher, but pain's never been deeper. Well, why, why is that? Why is there no stock market for suffering? And Andrew Yang and a bunch of people talk about like redefining our measurements, but I still haven't found anyone doing it. So what we did was I created a, a, a an application called Our Balance. Mm -hmm. And Our Balance, again, is the app is not called My Balance. <laughs> The app is not called Your Balance. The app is called Our Balance. What it does is it anonymously, again, you don't log in, you don't create an account, you don't do anything, like Apple approved it, right? So you, you know that we must be doing something, right? <laughs> it looks at four areas of your life, behavioral, biological, and then two versions of that. So biological, we look at your activity and your sleep, right? Are you sleeping and are you moving? Right? Because if you're not sleeping, you're going to have a harder day. And if you're not moving around a little bit, you're going to have a harder time sleeping and a lot of other psychosocial things that happen to you. So how do we do that if we don't, like, we don't, activity and sleep. Right? And then you've got behavioral, you know, and that would be like hanging out with friends and doing things that aren't work and work. Right? So I took these four elements and said, okay, all things being equal and everyone never having to work again, right? Like for money. Like, what would those numbers look like? So I created a chart or a system that comprises of 10 points. You get 2.5 points per area. So work, social, sleep, or activity. And you get a score every day. So every day, your phone, you carry it with you. It looks at where it thinks you are, what it thinks you're doing, and makes an assumption and creates a score. And every day, you find out how balanced you are.
So what's different about this? Because lots of lots of apps count steps and track sleep and measure and watch you work and not many actually watch you play. We we, we pride ourselves on that one. <laughs> um, uh, what's different is this. First, we don't care if you take 10,000 steps or get eight hours of sleep. We care that you don't take 20,000 steps and 15 hours of sleep. That's not balanced. Yeah. We don't care uh, if you're at work eight hours. We care if you're at work three hours or 11. And we don't care if uh, you're, you're at the bar one night a week, maybe except for a pandemic, um, versus at the bar five nights a week. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to create a way that we could represent a population's kind of health fingerprint in a single glance. And it needed to be a couple things. Anonymous, because you can't have this data used against you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then geospatial, you need to be able to leave a residue everywhere. Have you ever been to a store and there's just an ugly feeling in the store? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like people just feel crazy. I can guarantee you those people are unbalanced. Now, think about that same interaction, but now think about looking at Google and instead of seeing when a store is busy, seeing when it's full of unbalanced people. And that could be different than when it's busy. Right? Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to elevate the visibility of marginalized people by making the mistreatment they experience visible. Right. Right away, you can, you can look at Earn's score on their website, and then you can look at Jessica's score, and you can see the difference. You then can look at a group of white professionals and look at a group of black professionals and see their scores are radically different. Right. So, I wanted the application to really be a hallmark in a way we started to think about measurement and each other and well-being. I call it well-doing differently. In a nutshell, that was the goal. We spent about two years creating the application. We just launched it this past summer. We have two different pilot customers now. and We've demoed it for some larger insurance companies. So we're kind of excited about it. That's really fascinating. So, and you've you've seen in data differences between like, Demographically, you seem different. That's like night and day. Because I have a group for my family, like my spouse and I. I have a group for me, Jessica, because we're in a business together and some other folks. And then I've got Earn Pittsburgh. And then, of course, there's behavior residue in the app. So I can just look at people in the United States and how they're balanced are. Mm-hmm. And like the score differences are, are, are really remarkable. I mean, just think about it this way. Let's just say you've got a company of 100 people. And you've got 10 black and brown people and 30 women, and the rest are men and white. If you just put our balance on those phones and you could see those, right away, you wouldn't have to talk about pay gap difference. Right away, you wouldn't have to talk about uh, visibility in the boardroom. It would just would be obvious, right? And not only that, it would be real time, right? So the other great thing I love about the app is you don't have to wait a year to get the report. You get the report right. I could look at my phone right now and tell you the report. Right? Yeah. And that's what we need. Right? We need a stock market for the heart. Right. And we need to start saying, let's cut out this middle step that spent centuries trying to get to it ain't working and just say, well, this is where we're trying. This is the last step, not that step. So, so what the tools to, you mentioned redefining the metrics and the tools to re, to uh, remediating. So what, what are you, how, how can you use the data other than being like, holy, there is a big yeah. difference, then, then what? Yeah. So the, the measurement tool, how we, how we position and sell that is 
Uh, I'll give you a great example. I just spoke to someone who's got a thousand people working for them and a bunch of different teams that are remote out of that thousand and they manage a, a bunch of buildings. And I gave the demo to the, to the guy and the guy said to me, I've been looking for something that the team could use to hold me accountable, right? Mm-hmm. So I call it the, the app a Fitbit for culture, right? So don't count your step, count, count, count your, 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 your steps, not mm-hmm. your steps. Um, the remediation tool is a little bit heavier than this. So the one tool is like, a, here's, here's what's going on. This is how the leadership is doing because the culture shows these numbers in real time. The other step is remediation. That's the one that I worked on Earn with. And that's a way that you could get support for injustice. So for example, we have, a, we have an application of the remediation tool called the Health Desk. And the Health Desk is for communities that are dealing with uh, health inequality. And it's a simple service where they can just go to the healthdesk.io. They can say, I need help. They can select the fields of the facility that they can give us some information. And we have a, a, a service that comes online called the Advocator. And the Advocator takes any information we have about that particular facility and sends it to them. It might be keywords that they can say if they're in the emergency room or talking to a doctor so the doctor knows you know what you're talking about. It might be a phone number for a dedicated advocate, which someone's not going to give you if they think that they're going to be hurt, their job's going to be threatened. Um, but it, we also... Uh, uh, upscale it to if we have upstream relationships at facilities. So Jessica knows CEOs and leaders at certain health organizations. We just shoot them right to the top. Mm-hmm. Um, so the remediation tools are just as important. They're real time, but they're also crisis centered, right? I think it's just too late at that point. So somewhere between the real time pulse and the bleed out that's happening in the remediation tool, we, we need to build more solutions in, in that framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's millions of people like yourself that are doing remarkable work that fits within that juggernaut. But like I say to my friends all the time, if you wait until you're bleeding out on the street or someone's filming someone killing a black man with a knee to the neck, you waited too long. Yeah. <laughs> right? And if your, first res- if your first thought when you watch someone being killed is to film, we have a bigger problem. Yes, it needed to be filmed, but like, would I have been shot in the head jumping on that police officer? Absolutely. Would I have allowed that to happen and, and filmed it? No, that's nuts. I'm still shocked that wasn't news. Why didn't anyone jump on the cop? I don't know. You know, I just, we have to, you know, we've got this thing now in culture where we've gone from fight, flight, or freeze to flight, fight, freeze, or film. Mm. And this, this last one is insidious because we've gotten to the point where, you know, asking if black lives matter is even relevant because you, I wonder myself, do black deaths matter, right? Because so much of what we're seeing is about glorification of black death, right? The news and click cycles, right? It's feeding on itself. And I think if you, know, if you want to really look underneath the, the ugly underbelly of all this, there are only three celebrities that have ever been immoral, memorialized after their death and continue to work to this day. All black, Tupac, Whitney, and Michael. There are no white celebrities as holograms working full time. Right? There is something insidious going on between our relationship with technology and our need to, to subjugate each other. And I want to personally get to the root of that beast. I want to unplug it. Yeah. 
That's fascinating. I love, well, Chris, your work is so interesting. It's such a different, a different approach and way of thinking about it. The, the technology side, I don't think I've had any conversations, anything close to this with, with anyone. Um, so it's great. And I think for people listening are going to want to know more, how do they find you? How do they le learn from you more? So you said your book's is it being written? Is it coming out or something? Like, yes, it's, it's, it's in the editing phase now. Um, okay. but I, I'm pretty easy to find. I, the problem is I don't have a single channel where you can like get a steady stream of this stuff. Because if you see me on Twitter, I'm really prolific on Twitter. I'm always putting my thoughts up there. It, they're all over the map. Everything from like, you know, fight, flight, freeze or film to Black Death Matter. I mean, there's, there's a, mm -hmm. I'm not like a single source. I'm kind of like a multi-TV channel myself. But I always say to folks, you can read more about a lot of my work just on my website. Uh, my first book has a lot of this. My, my, I have a pretty good chapter on my father and his racist tirades uh, growing up uh, in there. Um, and, and Twitter, so my website, Twitter and stuff. Um, and then again, Jill, I give such good Google. Like literally just <laughs> putting in my name is crazy how much. I've got so many thousands of videos on YouTube. Not that I've done just like, like I don't know. I'm both ashamed and embarrassed and proud of how findable I am. That's so funny. Yeah, I had, <laughs> I, I'm relatively findable too. So I'm like a, an ex-spouse's dream. You can like just Google me and like find all the things and all the right? pictures and all that. It's like, oh, I've weird. used my, I've used my Google search results to get into hotel rooms. Like, cause I'll, I'll leave my wallet in the room and get locked out. And I'll literally say to the front desk, just Google Chris Dancy, like, just trust me. And like, they're like, okay, okay, we'll let you in. It's like, it's just, it's kind of uncomfortable. But the other thing that's really crazy about being, and by the way, in 10 years, everybody will be like you and I, everybody will be this findable. It's like, we're just early, early. Uh, I always tell people that if I give you cyborgs who are listening, I know there are a few of you out there, like call someone out or like when, when, they, when they act like they don't know something and you know they've looked it up. Like, don't let them get away with that. You know they know. <laughs> If you haven't talked to a friend in a while, don't pretend like you didn't read something on Facebook. You can literally mention it. Like okay, That's sorry. funny. It's funny. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely not the world's most connected, but I am much more Googleable than I used to be. Five years ago, I was just like working in a hospital and you'd find like a picture of me in a white coat looking kind of unhappy. But now there's like, <laughs> so there's, there's definitely more than there, there used to be. Um, Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your day, for doing the work you do, for creating this app, Our Balance. Uh, that's, can anyone buy it themselves or do they have to be part of an organization? It's completely free. Anyone can use it. It just go to either Apple or Google's app stores and type in Our Balance, one word. Um, you, you use it alone, but if you so desire, you want to put your family on it, you can put your family on it. What's really nice, you can see how your wife, your kids, your aunts and uncles, everyone, how balanced they are in real time. You don't know who, you just know the whole group's not doing well. That's the idea, people. Don't weaponize data. Stop taking screenshots. Um, and yeah, and just really start thinking about how you can deliberately use your technology in a way that shows what you value, not what's trending. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Jill. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts, and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.